Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, no mai harumai ki te au hurehanga. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World, kō klak and kanan tēnei. Maybe you've noticed that I've been a bit absent recently. It's because I'm in Ireland, for the first time since the pandemic hit, and I'm catching up with my friends and family. Luckily, not only do I have great colleagues in the RNZ podcast team making new episodes for the show, and friends at the ABC giving us some of their neat content, we also have an amazing back catalogue of hundreds of Our Changing Worlds episodes, many of which were made by the legendary Alison Balance. And so... I've got something a bit special for you this week. November marks the 75th anniversary of the rediscovery of the Takahe. Back in 1948, it was believed that this big blue flightless bird had gone extinct. But it hadn't. While she was recently passing through Ode to Poti, I got a chance to sit down with former Our Changing World producer and presenter, natural history book author and absolute lover of birds, the one and only Alison Balance, to talk about her latest book, all about this big blue bird. Takahe, Bird of Dreams, has just come out. I'm very excited about it. It's a matching set with Kākāpō, rescued from the brink of extinction. So we have two incredible flightless giant birds, which both of which we nearly lost and both of which we have dragged back from extinction. In fact, Takahe was declared extinct twice and now it's doing just fine. Where does the title come from? Bird of Dreams was an expression from Dr Geoffrey Orbell, who was the person who famously led the rediscovery team in November 1948, which re-found the extinct Notornis, as it was known then, in the Murchison Mountains in Fiordland, and he had dreamed about this bird since he was 10 years old. And because he had seen it at Otago Museum, right? Yes, when he was, he'd seen a photo of a specimen, actually. His mum was a bit of a photographer. She had gone to Otago Museum. They had one of the four known specimens of Takahe mounted in the museum. And when he saw that picture and his mum explained to him about this extinct giant bird, he was both fascinated and appalled and he was appalled at the idea of extinction, and he couldn't believe it was extinct. And so he became quite obsessed with it. Is the book more science-leaning? Is it more history? Is it really focused on the conservation? Tell me a bit about it. It does a bit of everything. So I, I wanted to tell people about the bird itself, because it's a, the Takahe is a lovely bird. It's so, I think it's really dignified. So the bird itself is fascinating, the evolutionary story of how basically it was a pukeko-like bird that flew here and it got here and went, oh, I don't need to fly anymore, so I'll become a flightless giant and I'll just wander around eating tussock. And then the conservation story is fantastic and the history is great as well. So in fact, it's those three things wrapped together. And what was the most kind of challenging part for you? The most challenging part for me was just that there was a huge amount of information there. So this year marks the 75th anniversary of the rediscovery. Well, that's 75 years of papers and records and reports and people doing stuff out in the field. So it was wrestling a lot of material and trying to go, what was the important stuff? What was the really interesting stuff? How can I put all this together in an interesting read? And how long has it taken to put the book together? I mean... 
I guess that's a difficult question because you've been, you know, working in this space and following the Takahe fortune for a very long time. But for the actual book itself? On and off for probably five years. But I'd, I have not worked full time on it in that time. But it was interesting for me going back because I, I have a very strong association with the Kākāpō Recovery Program as well. But actually I realised my association with Takahe went back further than that. So I first met a Takahe in the mid-1980s. And so that was halfway between the rediscovery and now. And you suddenly realise that actually that gives me quite a good perspective on the Takahe story. Mm. What was that first encounter? Well, the very first encounter was they had just hand, successfully hand-reared the first birds in Tianao, where they had got Takahe eggs out of the Murchison Mountains and had incubated them and hand-reared the chicks. And those chicks, alpine snow and tussock, were on display in the Tiano Wildlife Park. And I was working in Fjordal National Park. And you could, probably the first time outside of Pukaha Mount Bruce, which was the other place where they had had Takahe, you could wander down to the Tiano Wildlife Park, just like you still can today, and see these incredible creatures. And then I got an opportunity to go into the Murchison Mountains and help on a survey. And so I got to see Takahe in the wild, which is an amazing experience. Can you remember those first impressions? Can you remember that um, feeling or what you thought about the birds when you saw them? The thing that amazed me in the Murchison Mountains was you have this bird that at first glance looks ridiculously bright. It's blue, it's got a huge red bill and a frontal plate, it's got massive red legs, and you go, this thing is really conspicuous, and then you put it in the tussock in Fiordland, and you watch it disappear in front of your eyes <laughs> so it just steps behind a tussock bush and it vanishes and you go how can something so conspicuous be so invisible and then the other thing that struck me at the time was that huge thing of their dignity like you sit and watch a pair of takahe and they're almost always in pairs because they like being in pairs and they're very chatty and comfortable with each other and they spend most of their time feeding but they're just wandering along together oomphing mm-hmm. So if you sit and listen to Takahe, they're, mm, how are you? Mm, I'm doing very well, thank you. Mm, this is a lovely piece of grass. Mm, how's your piece of grass? <laughs> and they just, they're oblivious to everything else around them. And you go, this is a bird this is, that has been doing this for probably two, two and a half million years. Mm. And I can sit and watch it, and that's incredible. The title, Bird of Dreams, comes from... Dr. Orbel, who was the person who went looking for them. Well, he sort of led the effort. Dr. Orbel was an eye, ear, nose and throat doctor in Invercargill, but he had a crib up in Teano and he had a big map on his wall of Fjordland and he had marked every possible sighting of Takahe on this map for the previous hundred years. And he had realised that there was probably a place in the Murchison Mountains where if those birds were going to be found, that was where they were. And he went into the Murchison Mountains with some young friends. He had heard some tantalising sounds in the April of 1948, and so they went back looking for them. And one of the people that was on that expedition with him was Joan Watson, and you spoke to Joan in the episode we're about to play from November 2018, and that episode was to mark the 70th anniversary of them being found in the Murchison Mountains.
That's the sound of several pairs of takahe loudly reminding their neighbours that this is their territory. I'll come back to Burwood Bush and the 70th anniversary later on in the show, but first, let's go back in time to the rediscovery. Before humans arrived in New Zealand, there were two widespread species of takahe, North Island and South Island. By the time of European settlement, the North Island species was extinct and the South Island species was very rare indeed. Between 1849 and 1898, just four notornis, as they were commonly called then, were seen. Over the next half century, none. The problem? The usual mix of forest clearance and getting killed, especially by predators, feral cats, ferrets and especially stoats. Most people thought notornis were extinct, but Invercargill doctor Geoffrey Orbell wasn't so sure. He was a keen tramper and hunter and had an inkling that there might still be some surviving somewhere in Fiordland. In November 1948, Dr Orbell headed into a hidden valley in Fiordland's Murchison Mountains. With him was young Joan Telfer, her husband-to-be Rex Watson and Neil McCrosty. Joan died recently, but a couple of years ago she told me the story of their trips together and about rediscovering the Takahe. I always went along. I never carried a gun. I was the girl without the gun, but I always seemed to to go on expeditions and things like that. I was really privileged to have been. When I look back, I realise that, you know, I was blessed having all this wonderful Fiordland and with a man who was a leader. He was brilliant, well-read, and when you were out in the field with him, he knew so much about flora and fauna that, um, you know, everything was a lesson to be learnt. It was tremendous, wonderful Time. So these were mostly little hunting trips you were going on? Yes, yes. I can remember the ones I enjoyed were he adapted an old car and it was called the Swamp Buggy and we would all pile on board and drive up along the Upakarora stream looking for a pig. I used to love that outing, but then there were so many more. Always something to do in that area. It's a fantastic place. It's just a paradise for people who like the outdoors. And this was tramping mostly below the bushline or did you go up um, above the bushline as well? Well, I belonged to the Alpine Club for a while and cl- climbed to Homer. So tramping and climbing. And what kind of wildlife were you seeing when you were out in the hills in those days? Birds, mainly, yes. Sometimes a deer or more than that, I have seen 30 deer in a herd way back, yes, moving from one area to another and, of course, looking for Taki, where Doc always said, keep an eye out just in case because it's a vast area and they could be anywhere. So what did he used to say about the Takahe? Well, he was more or less convinced that it was here somewhere, but he wasn't sure because there were so many stories, and he had um, listened to everybody who talked about the bird in the past. Even from when he was quite young, I understand, he showed an interest. And he suspected they were in the Murchison Mountains. Of course, we called it Natornis. Natornis, Natornis. So we're talking about the 1940s here? 1948. Easter 
was when they went in deer stalking. I didn't go for that trip. I don't know why, but probably I was into sport or something for that weekend. But um, my husband, Neil McCrosty and Dr Orbell, went into the Murchison Mountains. They hadn't been in before, you see, so they're right up on the top. Looking, looking down, down on this yes. hidden and lake. And notice really. this beautiful lake, which was called the Lake of the Friendless. The Maoris called it that. And um, the valley didn't have a name. Now the lake is Lake Orbell, and the valley is Takahi Valley. But in those days it was the Lake of the Friendless. Yes, yes. It's beautiful, beautiful lake. I saw deer, so they climbed down and shot one deer. My husband, Rex, he went down to the lake to have a drink and saw some footprints, and he called Doc over, and Doc always had a pipe, and with that he scratched the length of toes on this and got in touch with Dr Fowler and Professor Sharples, and they all decided it was a white heron. So that, that was that, but not Doc. He had a feeling it was more than that. He'd heard an odd bird call while they were in there, something unusual, and thought that might it was inspecting or going in and investigating again. Were they all quite excited when they came out? Oh, yes, quite excited, or Doc was. But I think Neil and Rex, um, it was just another expedition, you know. They weren't so sure about everything. And um, it was a co- very cold winter with snow well down, so there's no way that they could go in until it was the 19th of November. And I was invited along. <laughs> we had netting, fishnet can't remember how many yards of fishnet to um, catch the birds. I would hope to catch the birds. But we left at 3.30 in the morning. You know, c- conditions on the lake were ideal. And uh, the sun came up and everything was bright red. It was gorgeous scene. It was brilliant. And we had breakfast on board. And we tied the boat up very near the entrance to the glowworm caves and then climbed up and up and up through um, rock, windfalls, beautiful beach forest. It was a very difficult climb. It took about three hours. And we came out just by the stream with the, at the outlet onto a flat area, which was covered by boxwood and snowgrass. Snowgrass was deep. It was right up to our waist. It was huge. Wonderful cover for birds. And Doc said, follow me and don't talk and only hand movements. So we walked only a very short distance through this snow grass, and um, Doc crouched and put, put his finger up to say he could see one bird. So we were all crouching and peering, and through the snow grass, I caught a glimpse of the bright red beak. Then he put two fingers up, and there was a, a mate, a pair, So with that, he gave us orders quietly to put the netting in a semicircle around and then quietly and very slowly. The birds weren't disturbed at all. We were so cautious and we slowly drove them into the net. I looked down, there was the bird, and I thought, I have to do my thing. (laughs) So I crouched down and grabbed it. I was almost throttling it. 
<laughs> but I wasn't going to let it go. It was well trapped in the netting, and somebody came along and helped to release it. So when you had that one in your hands, yes. what were you thinking, apart from, I'm not going oh, to this is it. run away? I was overwhelmed. We've got it. You know, I couldn't believe it. And it's a beautiful bird. It's a brilliant bird. And so they were taken down to the beach. We had what we call lunch, but it was only half past nine. We couldn't believe our good fortune. We expected to be in the valley all day and not see a bird. And so we were overwhelmed as I haven't got the Time magazine but the Time magazine said we returned in ornithological ecstasy. I love that. <laughs> it was world news. It was and Doc knew that. Doc said that at the time. He said now <clears throat> as soon as we'd caught, caught them and released them he said now we've got to get to Invercargill to the paper and spread the news and it did. It just went it just panicked from everywhere People asked for articles and um, talk. You had to talk to groups and so on. And it was a great time. Because everyone had thought it was extinct. Yes, yes, they did. Yes. And you'd rediscovered it. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> it was. And this National Geographic, you see, it was in all the magazines. The best magazines, you know, the glossy magazines. What struck you most about the bird when you first saw it? Oh, the colour. The size and and the colour. It would be like a rooster, about as standing as t tall as a rooster. But it had this magnificent beak and then all the beautiful colouring down the back and then a white tail. It was amazing. Spectacular in every way. Oh, you couldn't miss them in amongst the green grass in amongst the tussock and so on. What did Dr Feller think? Well, in January, uh, Dr Feller organised a party and there were ten of us. I was the only female. Again? <laughs> but all the best of, of the men in... Um, wasn't the Department of Conservation. I think it was Internal Affairs in those days with Dr Orbell. And we were in there for a week, in t living in tents and exploring... And um, we actually saw 50 birds, but Dr Fowler thought there would be 100. Thought there must be, you know, because we spread out and we walked the valley up and down and we were counting and doing all. It was, that was another enjoyable occasion. And did you ever go into the Murchison's again after that? Yes, I've been in by helicopter on um, two occasions. The 50th, Neil McCrosty, Rex Watson... Joan Watson and Dr Orbell. Yes, we, we went in by helicopter. Was it so. nice to go back? Oh, great. And, and then later, I can't remember the occasion, I think the family all decided we should go in. That was Joan Watson, recalling the time she, her husband Rex Watson and Neil McCrosty and Geoffrey Orbell rediscovered the Takahe 70 years ago this week. None of the original rediscovery party are still alive, but Doc decided to celebrate instead with some of their children, and that's what we're off to do now. The plan for the day is to fly into the Murchison Mountains to release a pair of Takahe, and the families will get a chance to visit the famous Takahe Valley. Back at Burwood Bush, Ranger Glenn Greaves is catching two young Takahe and putting them carefully into travel boxes.
So we've got a male called Dor, D-O-R-E, he's uh, named after famous explorer, and the second bird, the female, is called Tohor. One was reared at Burwood Takahe Centre, uh, the other one came from an island in Fovo Strait, and they've been paired together for the last couple of months in a pen. Among the family members watching are Rex and Joan Watson's children. So I'm Huntley Watson, I'm the oldest of Joan and Rex Watson's. Family? I'm Paula Poti, Nee Watson, and I'm the youngest. So what do you all reckon when you get a chance to stand here and look at Takahe like that? Yeah. Hmm, this is a very emotional time. It's the ending of my parents' era with the Takahe, but the beginning of the children and grandchildren, I think. Have you been into Takahe Valley before? Never know, it's closed, so I haven't had the opportunity. Never. So that's even more exciting, to see where they actually stood and where they, where they actually found them. Before we leave Burwood Bush, it has a very interesting history. These days, dock staff fondly refer to it as their Takahe farm. 25 pairs of birds are housed in large, predator-free outdoor pens full of their favourite food. Tussock, and pretty much left to their own devices to breed and hopefully produce lots of new takahe. Burwood Bush was set up in the mid-1980s. At the time there was only a small and steadily declining population of wild takahe. They were found only in Fiordland's Murchison Mountains, and there was just a hundred or so birds. Down from an estimated population of two to four hundred when Doc Orbell and the team rediscovered them. For about 25 years, Burwood Bush was home to an intensive captive rearing effort to raise chicks from surplus eggs collected in the wild in Fiordland. They could do this because Takahe lay two eggs, but almost only ever raise one chick. The chicks were reared using puppets to ensure they didn't imprint on people, and over 25 years, more than 300 Takahe were released. They went either to safe new island homes all around the country or back into Fiordland to boost the wild population. But it turned out there was a problem. The hand-reared birds successfully adapted to life in the wild and survived well, but they weren't nearly as good as wild birds at being parents and raising chicks. The puppet rearing was stopped and the Takahe farm idea successfully kicked off. Each year now there are about 25 birds to find homes for and Dor and Tohor are in a helicopter en route to Tors Ridge, just over the lake from Teano. As the chopper lands, we can hear the birds in their travel boxes calling. It seems they can't wait to be let free in their new home. To describe this amazing landscape, Glenn. Yeah, it's a beautiful place here, quite special. Uh, we've got a ridge of, of limestone outcrops here, sort of spurs of rock jutting out into the sky. It's it's incredible, especially on a day like this where you can you can see the lake um, in the background in the township of Teano. Um, so this this territory has historically always held at least one pair of takahe, but it's currently empty, so it's a perfect place to release these birds. Well, they've got a nice home to go see these birds. Okay, so undo the latches. Who knows how they'll react when they come out of the box. Some of them just take off, other ones will come out quite slowly. Okay, on three. One, 
two, three. They're looking quite calm, aren't they? Oh, I think so. I think they look very settled and beautiful day. So they should be happy. Wow. Have fun. And lovely to see the birds running that miles, miles away. I think they're out of sight now. Yeah, they're out of sight, that's right. I'll have a good look around, um, see if there are any other birds here. Once we leave, they'll start calling and trying to find their, their territory again. While Dor and Tohor explore and settle into their new home, we hop over the hill to Takahe Valley, where I get a chance to catch up with Geoffrey Orbell's daughters and hear their recollections of the rediscovery. Hi, I'm Lindley, Lindley Charteris now, Doc Orbell's oldest daughter. I'm Mary, Lindley's sister. Second run in line. The day it happened, I was, I must have been eight, I must have been eight or nine, and I can remember father had a boat called the Mariner and it was varnished, and this varnished yeah. boat went round okay. and round and yeah, circles. I remember the boat. Yes, going round he and about, round outside the yeah. boat harbour. So he was doing celebratory laps. He did, yes. well, yes, he did. And he came in and the furore afterwards, internationally, was absolutely incredible. Uh, there was just telegrams, because that's the day of the telegrams, and there were you know, people interviewing people, and, you know, it was just went on and on and on. It was, it was quite spectacular, really. Oh. And that's why my mother, many years hence, when there was still a hoo-ha and she was in her 90s, kept saying, I'm sick of that damn bird. Mm. <laughs> but she was only joking about it. And you've been into Takahe Valley before, haven't you? Yes. I came in at, I would be late teens or very early 20s, flew in and then walked out. And I stayed, we stayed at night or so in the hut, which I'm sure is still the same. I came in once with father and mother, and it was the first time she came in with Joan and Rex. And it's been a privilege to have our grandchildren and our children walk up here and thoroughly enjoy it as well. I think that's quite special. Doc's Glen Greaves manages a team of rangers looking after Takahe, which are now spread across the Murchison Mountains and 19 other sites around the country, including Goulin Downs on the popular Hifi track in Kahurangi National Park. Let's catch up with him to find out a bit more about how the population is doing overall, especially how many Takahe there are now. So we've got a pretty close estimate of around 376, so somewhere between 370 and 380, we think. So it's up about 10% from last year's population, which is a really good, really good year. Now tell me about that Kaharangi release. Why have you moved birds up to Northwest Nelson? So we've got a, a good problem where we've got too many birds at our current sites. So we're really looking forward to create new sites. And rather than small offshore islands, we're really looking for large mainland sites now. And that's what Kaharangi really provides. Goulin Downs is a large site, about 3,500 hectares of tussock and nearly predator-free, so it's a perfect site for, for Takahe, we think. How many birds did you release there? So we've released 30. They've been there now six months and all are still alive and pretty much all within the downs themselves have they've stayed put, which is a really great sign. And last week we found the first nest. 
So how many eggs in this first nest? So that that nest had three eggs, which is a bit odd for (laughs) Tucker. Yeah, yeah. So this is actually a trio. So we've got an excess of females at that site. There are more females than males. And so what's happened is we've got a couple of pairs that have an additional female adult with them. So yeah, we may actually have four eggs by the time we go back and have another look. So any idea whether those eggs might be fertile? No, they were too young to determine for sure. I think the oldest eldest egg was around four days. But we'll know for certain in a couple of weeks when we do another field trip up there. Now, thinking about stoats, because they're the main predator, what have stoat numbers been like in the Murchison Mountains? So they've they've dropped back to, to probably the lowest level that's, that's ever been there since we've been monitoring them. But they did peak um, over last summer and early autumn. We did lose a few adult takahe to stoat predation, unfortunately. And what's this coming year looking like? We're expecting a big rat plague. Um, beach, the beech trees are flowering really heavily at the moment, so unfortunately that means uh, next, next summer we'll have high rat numbers, which will lead on to high stoat numbers the following year. On the good side, we've got uh, quite intensive trapping control, predator control in the Murchison Mountains now. Now today we released two birds, and how many more birds are you going to release into the Murchison Mountains this year? Uh, so we've got another 18 birds to be released uh, next week, Wednesday, uh, weather dependent. Um, so that'll, that'll boost the population to around the 150 mark, which is fairly close to carrying capacity. So that was the situation in late 2018. As Glenn said, an estimated 370 to 380 birds and attack a hay release earlier that year into a new site at Kahurangi National Park, but also an impending beach mass season where there'll be more predators and that problem of having too many birds and not the space to put them in. November of this year will be the 75th anniversary. So what's happened in the five years since? They've made lots more takahe, <laughs> and most of those birds have actually gone back into the Murchison Mountains because they had a series of years where the, that population was dropping down. So they boosted, they filled it to the max, they boosted that population as much as they can. The kaharangi birds, wah, the jury's a bit out on whether the Hefe Track Goulin Downs area is a good place for takahe. So there were a couple of chicks produced in the first year. Then if people remember, we had a mega mast, a really big beach masting season. Uh, They lost uh, two or three takahe to predators. They had an unfortunate incident around the 1080 drop where birds wandered out of the exclusion zone and ate 1080 pellets and died. And then birds just started dying. They they seemed very underweight. They, They don't seem to be thriving. There were no more successful nests. There was a flood which took out a number of nests. So that 30 birds that they'd put into Kaharangi got down to 15. They've topped that up again. They have just had a successful breeding season again. They have a couple of chicks produced, but the jury's out. So they don't know whether long-term, whether they will leave the birds there. But at the moment, they still don't have another place to move them to. They need big predator-free areas, basically. That's what I was just about to ask. What is Takahe country? So obviously tusuk because that's what they eat, but they also need a large area and very little stoats. Is it stoats in particular or is it all predators? Well, in the Murchison Mountains, it's stoats that are the big problem. They are looking at areas such as the Greenstone Valley at the head of Lake Wakatipu, uh, the Reese Valley as well. There are cats and ferrets there, so they're trying to get those numbers right down because they imagine that those will be a problem as well. And they don't just need tussock. Tussock is good, but you need good tussock. 
so kaharangi is red tussock, it's probably just not quite good enough. Pasture grass is fine. So a mixture of tussock and grass, like in the Greenstone Valley, would probably be really good for them. And numbers-wise, what are they up to now? Well, at the moment, the population officially stands at 475, and takahe are a bit like racehorses, so they have one birthday a year. They don't count them until the first winter's passed. So on the 1st of October this year, the population will pass 500. I don't know exactly what it will be. Doc doesn't know exactly what it will be yet, but um, it will reach 500. Now, that's amazing. Mm, yeah, <laughs> that does sound pretty special, but... Again, I guess it's going to impound their problem of, of where to put them. Predator-free New Zealand, bring it on. <laughs> and so future for Takahe, I mean, are there any challenges that they might come up against that, say, the Kakapo have faced, you know, like genetic bottlenecks or diseases? Or is it seem to be that they're actually doing pretty good They're actually that? doing really well on that front. Their mm -hmm. genetics seem to be in pretty good shape. Uh, Glenn Greaves keeps a close eye on that. They haven't been through a bottleneck the way Kakapo and Black Robin have, which is surprising, but there's some good genetic diversity out there. It would be good to find out whether there's still some extra diversity in the Murchison Mountain birds that they haven't got represented in the in the captive population that they know of. So they have a big pedigree that they work on. They've done genomic work. They haven't had any major disease issues. With climate change, you never know what's going to happen on that front in terms of any of our species, when you think of hoi-haw, yellow-eyed penguin in Dunedin, which is, the population is crashing at the moment. So nothing is off the table, but there's no big red flags at the moment. Well, that's good news and plenty of birds. So I guess the future is all about finding different places to put them. And hopefully, you know, they'll keep expanding and we'll have more take more experiences like you had where you can go into the mountains and see them that would be amazing it would be lovely to have more wild opportunities for people at the moment there are plenty of opportunities you can go to Tiritiri Matangi in Auckland you can go to Orakanui in Dunedin and that's amazing but it would be nice for people to be able to go tramping in the mountains and just come across a takahe that is a wild bird and you could have your own Orbell moment A massive thanks to Alison Balance for taking the time to come chat with me. This episode, which originally aired on the 22nd of November 2018, was produced by Alison Balance. She spoke to Doc Takahe Ranger Glenn Greaves, the late Joan Watson, and members of the families of Geoffrey Orbell and Joan and Rex Watson. Sound engineering was by Phil Bench, and Tim Walken is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. Follow Our Changing World on your favourite podcast app. Plus, we're now on YouTube. Search for the RNZ podcast channel where you can find the Our Changing World playlist. Our website is at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld and it's there that you can access the absolute treasure trove that is the Our Changing World back catalogue of episodes. You can also sign up to our monthly newsletter there or you can keep up to date with us on Twitter or Facebook, where we are at RNZ Science. Te nākwe i mai. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. Kia pai tō wiki. Hold up. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.